Greetings. Welcome to Haber Bros, a podcast for historic, cross-centered Christians. We seek to provide ancient answers to a culture that's forgotten the questions. Thank you for listening this week. If you like what you're hearing or enjoy the show, please share it with a friend and say positive things about us on Twitter and Facebook. This is the biggest way that podcasts grow. If you haven't yet given us a five-star rating on your preferred podcast platform, please do. We would so appreciate it. Follow us on Twitter at, at @clergylay and join our Facebook discussion group. Every day I see uh, new views on um, our Facebook group, which is great, but there's not really any action there. You got to join our Facebook discussion group um, mm. because I can do poll, put up polls there and I can do other things on that that I can't do on our, just our Facebook page. So please join that. I'm Kirk Haberman, a church musician. And this is my brother, Chris, a priest. Hey, Chris, how are you doing? Kirk, I'm doing great. I enjoyed seeing your wife and eldest son in uh, this Zoom call just a few minutes ago and <laughs> had a little fun discussion there. Uh, <laughs> your eldest son, Brian, uh, Bryden, is, is a wonderful child. Yes. Made in the image of his own father. <laughs> Perhaps. So I was asking Bryden, I said, Bryden, for, for the longest time, he and, and my daughter Jordan would uh, FaceTime and play either Minecraft, mostly Minecraft, but sometimes Roblox uh, together. But I said, why haven't you called Jordan for a while? And what did he say? He said, uh, with a sheepish grin on his face, he said, well, I'm grounded. <laughs> and he's grounded because... Uh, in virtual school, uh, he dug a, furtively, unbeknownst to us, dug a fairly <laughs> deep hole in the first three or four weeks. And, and now, to his credit, um, he's working his way out of it. He took a bunch of screenshots uh, of the digital gradebook in each of his classes, and he's been kind of crossing stuff up, off in his photos app on his iPad. And, um, and, and the, uh, the goal is Friday, which is tomorrow. We're recording this on a Thursday afternoon. And so he has, he's had a plan. And Christopher, did you notice he came in excited to tell me about a productive conversation he had with his English teacher? Um, like, so evidently that grade, when I check it later, I'll see that up. So, so hopefully things are on the right trajectory and there'll be a happy Roblox or Minecraft reunion between Jordan and my son, Bryden. Yes, we hope so. <laughs> I, Kirk, I believe it's in Hebrews where uh, we are told that Jesus is is patient with us because he he's he is able to sympathize with us because he was like us in every way except without sin. Am I paraphrasing that right? 
That's that's quite right. So could you connect the dots for the listener? What do you say? Yeah, well, me? you're a good father <laughs> who knows his son because you were like him in yes. every way. Mm. Uh, it's, it's funny how, how long it took you to figure out school. <laughs> mm-hmm. and, and that was kind of the discussion that we had on, on Zoom here before the before we started recording was was how uh, Kirk was explaining to Brighton or actually Kirk's wife was explaining to Brighton that in fact Kirk would do his work and just not turn it in <laughs> and and so Kirk is very familiar with with uh, Brighton who's very capable but is somehow just not um, figuring out how to to get the work in so Christopher you're you're familiar with Myers Briggs right I am yeah yeah so I, listener, I, you, you may likely be familiar with this. This is a, a popular personality um, categorization, personality typing um, school of thought. And I think it, it originally comes from Carl Jung. And, it, and it, 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 it may not be the be all end all, but I think it, it captures something accurately. And there's, there's been a, a saying that it's a J's world. So the last, mm. the last uh, letter, you can be an introvert or extrovert, um, an N or an S, a T or an F, a thinker or a feeler. Intuitive or, or sensing, uh, yeah, thinking yeah. or feeling. And, and then a P or a J. Or, and uh, and P's are, sponta- are spontaneous and J's are, uh, J's, J's are planner and need planners and need loose ends tied up. And um, our, our whole modern world is basically built by and for J's. And so there's mm. this whole uh, category of closet P's, like people who are at home, they're a P they're kind of spontaneous and they're kind of messy and they have loose ends tied up and they like sleeping on decisions before they make them. Um, but actually the, the world uh, really rewards J's, right? People who, who make good snap decisions, who, um, who are organized, who make lists, who attack their to-do list, um, who are not spontaneous and just go off and do a thing because it occurs to them. And, uh, and I am, I've always been such a P and uh, I mean, Bryden is, is clearly just that. And so he's going to have to learn that I did, like I did, that it's a Jay's world and you got to make your peace with it and you got to put on that hat in the morning and say, I'm going to make a list and I'm going to do it and I'll be spontaneous later and be frivolous and uh, I'm not frivolous. I, Kirk, I'm even falling into Jay vocabulary the here. Has the, education, <laughs> has the education system out there adapted at all? Because in, in my final years of, of teaching, we kind of adjusted you know, the old school would be if you didn't get an assignment in on time, you'd get a zero, um, which in fact is like kind of, kind of a weird way of grading because it's not an F it's actually. A, so if, if we're right. on a four point scale <laughs> with, with a being a four B being a three C being a two um, D being a one and zero being an F it's a minus four, right? Or minus right. five, right? Uh, minus five. Um, in, in, and uh, in fact, as public educators, we are paid to, to not let, like, we're not allowed to let these kids get away with not getting education, essentially. Right. Like it's our, it's our duty. And when you give a kid a zero, you're saying, well, you don't have to do this assignment. Okay. So where, where in my final years as a teacher, uh, we, we wouldn't, we wouldn't give zero. So yeah, we'd have due dates, uh, but we wouldn't punish people for turning things in late, but we also wouldn't let them get away with not doing it. Yeah. And so there's a rejection of the old school model of saying, well, okay, you don't get to learn this. No, no, no. We're going to chase you down and make you do this. Yeah. It's, it's, it's more work, but, but uh, it's, it's definitely, I think, a much better system. There's uh, a lot of thought in educational psychological research that's, that's gone into this. And 
uh, a lot of uh, faculty lounge debates back and forth that, that happen kind of casually between frustrated teachers. Um, so there are two things that are happening. I mean, number one, you, you, you pointed out like the importance of a child learning deadlines, like deadlines matter. Like in life, there are times when you needed to do something and the opportunity passes and that's that. And so like we do need to teach our children that. And yet on the other hand, and I feel this strongly, um, my, uh, my purpose as an educator is not to punish you mm -hmm. because you learned it on October 1st, not <laughs> September 29th. Um, right. The point is that you learn what I'm trying to teach you. Right. And You're as teaching we, to mastery. So if it takes you yeah. an extra, extra two weeks for mastery. And we just, uh, we just read a couple of weeks ago, the parable of the laborers in the vineyard, right? Mm. Um, yep. Those who arrived and did, did, did some work at, you know, 4 p.m., got paid the same denarius as those who came in the morning, right? So, I mean, I, the, the point is I want children to master the content. And, um, and if they ultimately can demonstrate that they did so, um, they're going to get credit. And so we have, we have a more generous sliding scale, like 10% per day is mine. So if you, if yeah. you turn in- It incentivizes turning it in on time. Yeah. If you turn in something two days late, you still get it at 80%. And then honestly, there's still an asterisk to that. Like there was a, if there's a child that falls in woefully behind, I, I always will have a conversation with a parent and develop a strategy. Like, hey, mm. let's, set up, let's set up a plan to get these things in. And if you do, I'm, I'm going to give you credit. Because like, my point is that the, the purpose, of, again, isn't to fail a child, but to ultimately right. get the child to mastery of the material. Yep. Yeah. Yeah. And, and our, our district was so intent on mastery that even as, as so when, when would my last year of teaching been, been uh, maybe spring of 2013? somewhere around there at that time some teachers were experimenting with doing away with grading homework altogether yeah you know, that's the, been a big the, push too yeah so i like mean the, the idea is, that... is to push towards mastery and, and and you provide evidence of mastery and that's what the grade is yeah and um, so rather than weight, weighted grades are now super popular weighted heavily towards assessments like projects yeah. um tests quizzes because again that's where you demonstrate mastery um and that has its own drawbacks as well. But then you're not punishing a child for kind of um, falling behind in the drudgery of homework. And like kids are kids are overscheduled anyway. You know, kids oh, yes. are in a in oh my like, gosh. at any given point in time, two or three more activities per season than you and I were, Christopher. Yeah. I mean, you and I played every sport, but we never played more than one at a time. Right. <laughs> and that's just not true for kids now. Right. They 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 play for their school, but then their traveling team and Oh, yeah. Listener, I don't know if this interests you at all, but I guess, <laughs> I guess to relate this to you, listener, if you are a J, if you are someone who is exasperated with your child who is not meeting deadlines, fear yeah. not. Um, part of that is a personality difference. It, it does not mean that they are, you know, not capable. It's just that they work a little bit differently. And, and um, may the Lord give you patience to, to kind of uh, come to understand their approach to life and the way that their brain works and that 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 uh if they don't get it uh that that our education system arbitrarily sets dates on when you know mastery is supposed to occur and uh you know i, I hope that more teachers can can um, think more about um getting the kid to mastery than being like well you didn't master it by september 21st therefore you don't get to learn this <laughs> which kind of once i made that change in my mind i'm like how dare these teachers like do it any other way <laughs> Yes. Yeah. And so even as a seminary student, I didn't understand. Uh, it, it just kind of hurt my soul that there are some, some students who struggled um, to, to, to get things done on time or to, to 
get mastery at a certain date. And it just seems so arbitrary suddenly to say that um, they wouldn't pass or get a certain grade if, if by arbitrary date they, they didn't get that mastery. And, and honestly, our, 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 some of our most interesting, eccentric human beings, mm. our great creators, authors, artists, um, were almost all deadline averse. <laughs> I mean, that's just the way that kind of great minds work is they work when they work. Um, they, so maybe they your child is a great create. mind. Um, Douglas maybe. Adams, the author of Hitchhiker's Guide to the Galaxy, who was um, uh, a, a horror to every <laughs> editor that ever he ever wrote for, um, had this great uh, line that I sometimes quote. He's like, uh, I love deadlines. I love the whooshing sound they make as they <laughs> rush past my head. <laughs> so how about that? With that, Kirk, shall we turn to the gospel? Let's do it. Today's gospel comes from Matthew chapter 21, verses 33 to 44. Here another parable. There was a master of a house who planted a vineyard and put a fence around it and dug a wine press in it and built a tower and leased it to tenants and went into another country. When the season for fruit drew near, he sent his servants to the tenants to get his fruit. The tenants took his servants and beat one, killed another and stoned another. Again, he sent other servants more than the first. And they did the same to them. Finally, he sent his son to them, saying, They will respect my son. But when the tenants saw the son, they said to themselves, This is the heir. Come, let us kill him and have his inheritance. They took him and threw him out of the vineyard and killed him. When therefore the owner of the vineyard comes, what will he do to those tenants? They said to him, He will put those wretches to a miserable death and let out the vineyard to other tenants who will give him the fruits in their seasons. Jesus said to them, have you never read it in the scriptures? The stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. This was the Lord's doing, and it is marvelous in our eyes. Therefore, I tell you, the kingdom of God will be taken away from you and given to a people producing its fruits. And the one who falls on the stone, this stone will be broken to pieces. And when it falls on anyone, it will crush him. The word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Today's passage comes immediately after last week's passage, which was the parable of the two sons, and it has a similar theme. Last week's passage, we had two sons in the parable, and both were asked to go to work in the vineyard. One son said he was not going to go, and the other one said he would. And Jesus asked the simple question of the chief priests and elders, which of the two did the will of the father? And they said the first, which was the son who said no, but changed his mind and actually went. Next week, we have the parable of the wedding feast. 
which has a again these these are thematically paired these three parables those who are invited to the wedding feast uh, choose not to come they were invited but uh, and this is a quote from the passage they paid no attention and went off one to his farm and another to his business while the rest seized his servants treating them shamefully and killed them today's parable is smack uh, sandwiched in between those it's the parable of the tenants and the imagery could not be more clear there's a master of the house who plants a vineyard god is the master the vineyard is israel again this is familiar imagery for uh, for, for uh, the vineyard being israel and then the servants that are sent to to the vineyard are the prophets israel rejected the prophets and uh and they will they haven't yet but they will kill jesus god's son even the imagery of the son being thrown out of the vineyard after he was killed matches uh, the way that Jesus was crucified outside of the city limits of Jerusalem on Golgotha. Uh, and there's a, a parallelism between this parable and the parable of the two sons. Jesus tells uh, the parable, and then after the parable, he asks the chief priests and the elders of the people, he asks them a question because the answer could not be more obvious. And so th there is... There is a method to what is what Jesus is doing. It's, I don't know. Could we compare it maybe to the Socratic method, the way that 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 uh, Socrates would uh, converse with people to kind of get them to come to their own conclusions? Jesus poses, tells a parable, and then asks a question with a very obvious answer that essentially I wouldn't say entrap because there's a bad connotation to entrap, but but would kind of indict. I guess would be a good word. Would indict. Uh, they, they would indict themselves with their answer. So last week he said, which of these sons did the will of the father? It's obvious. The one that obeyed, right? This week he asked, which, uh, I'm sorry, what, what will the owner of the vineyard do to those tenants when he comes? And the answer, he will put those wretches to a miserable death and let out the vineyard to other tenants who will give him the fruits in their season. So essentially he allows them to hang themselves on their own rope or whatever that term would be. The answer is, is self-evident, and yet these teachers of the law rejected God's own son. And so obviously the imagery is clear, but even just where this happens, you know, in the temple, Jesus has just cleansed the temple and he's teaching in the temple, and they ask him on whose authority do you teach? But rather than, you know, he and he kind of throws the question back at them, but they knowing that they are answering his questions and knowing the, the proper answer, they refuse to see where this parable indicates they are in it. Um, and in fact, they would have arrested him right there. For some reason, the, this passage cuts off the final two verses of this chapter, which, which go this way. When the chief priests and the Pharisees heard his parables, they perceived that he was speaking about them. And although they were seeking to arrest him, they feared the crowds because they held him to be a prophet. So Jesus' teaching could not be more clear and more evident that, in fact, uh, who Jesus is and that he is the, the fulfillment of Israel. And yet the, the, these teachers of the law have their own agenda, kind of apart from seeing the revelation of God. And um, they would rather get rid of him and retain their own power than, in fact, uh, kind of heed his teaching. So each parable ends with Jesus pronouncing judgment. So last week, Jesus said, the tax collectors and prostitutes go into the kingdom of God before you. 
This week, Jesus says, the kingdom of God will be taken away from you and given to a people producing its fruits. So in terms of commentary, there isn't a ton for us to say since it's so clear. It's, it's so clear that Jesus is saying, you who would represent God to the people um, are in fact not doing so. And so God is going to take the kingdom from you and he's going to give it to um, a people producing its fruits. So I, I guess what I would issue is, is caution. And, and of course, uh, many scholars writing on this caution against anti-Semitism or even uh, is, is supersessionism. Con- I, I'm asking you because I'm not sure. Is yeah. it considered a heresy? Um, but there's this, there's, there's this wrong idea called supersessionism that, in fact, the church has superseded Israel. Uh, and, and the reason that that's incorrect is because God, God has not replaced Israel with the church. The God's promises to Israel stand. Um, but, in fact, uh, we need to – I think what's important for us Christians to do – uh, and you know what? I'll quote Stanley Hauerwas here, who has a very good commentary on, on Ma- the book of Matthew. He says, rather than presuming that these pr- parables provide grounds for determining who is in and who is out, we should rather attend to how these parables work to help those who are out identify themselves. The chief priests and Pharisees realized that he was speaking about them. So in fact, those who are out find themselves in the parables. Um, Jesus is not rejecting Israel. God's promise to Israel has not been superseded. And yet um, for those who choose to reject Jesus are in in essence, putting themselves outside of of the kingdom. Uh, And so let's just remember kind of the centrality of Israel. Uh, Remember that after the resurrection, the disciples continue to pray and worship in the temple. And in fact, in this chapter, we see the cleansing of the temple. It was an indication not of its rejection, but of its significance. Jesus cleansed the temple, not, uh, you know, destroyed and rejected it. So I I think our task when we read this is to recognize our place in the parable, which we need to realize isn't always uh, in the place that we, that, that uh, we might be in relation to uh, the contemporary application when Jesus is preaching it. And what I mean is this, is we need the wisdom and the clarity to look at this and see ourselves in the place of the Pharisees, if in fact that's where we are, that we are just as capable of being the teachers of the law and the Pharisees, uh, depending on our activity today. And, and, and we need to, uh, we Obviously, there is no condemnation for those that are in Christ Jesus. But um, there, there is still, a, a, you know, we are free from the, from the, from the judgment and, uh, of, of, of sin because Jesus has taken care of that for us. However, like, uh, we, we are still capable of, of hubris, of, of vainglory, of seeing ourselves in the wrong place in, in these parables, we are still capable of arrogance and we're still capable of sin. And, and the key is to recognize our sin and to, and to, to realize where we ought to be in this parable, to, that we ought to be listening to the, to the word of Jesus and not having our agenda apart from uh, what Jesus has revealed here. So that's a long and wordy way of saying that we are just as capable of being pharisaical as the Pharisees are here. 
Yeah, I was wondering if uh, we were going to stumble into the matter of Israel and the Jews in this parable. Um, I commented last week that it, it really seems that Matthew, um, perhaps he has street cred to do this because he was um, was it was a Jew. Yeah. Uh, but but Matthew has it not has it out for for the Jews, but but highlights in ways that other gospels don't necessarily. I guess John does too. John does in, yeah. in, in some John, really John, John ways. talks about the Jews but, <laughs> almost as the separate entity right, for right. fear of the Jews. Where right, right, let's, right. let us not yeah. forget that that all the characters here, almost all the characters here are Jews. And if they're not, yeah. they're, 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 they kind of stand out. But Matthew, Matthew has, a, has a particular Jewish identity. Um, an elevation of the Mosaic law refers to it as much or more than any of the other, other writers. Um, well, it, it begins with, with, uh, with the lineage, you know? Yeah, yeah. Kind of how Jesus is, is yeah. uh, the, the promised one, yeah. So he sort of has the street cred to do this when he... Um, decides to bring the hammer down on Jewish mm-hmm. contemporary first yeah. century Jewish rejection of Israel, and um, and I, I, this this is this is hard. This is a harsh parable because that's what this parable is about: mm-hmm. is that the establishment um, is going to kill <laughs> the owner owner's son, right? There, he's prophesying his own death in a couple of days, right? These are Holy Week parables. This is after the triumphal mm-hmm. procession, which is yeah, we skipped 20. right over, you know, yeah, <laughs> Palm Sunday, yeah, so uh, this, at the beginning of chapter twenty-one, yeah, yeah. This is this is whatever, you know, a day or two before Passover, um, and we'll touch on that in a moment because the psalm that he quotes is the processional psalm that all Jews would have. It was one of the psalms of ascent. Um, that they would have sung as as they had been approaching. I, I'll save that for a moment. So, yeah. but a word about the Jews, um, because I, Christopher, I I preached on this. I preached on Romans mm. eleven this this summer, mm. uh, and uh, and this is a, a hard and tangled thing. But Saint Paul enters into the mystery of the role of the Jews and Gentiles in God's plan of mm. salvation for all in Romans eleven, and if. Uh, listener, if you have ever read that or spent some time with that or heard that preached, you'll remember that the metaphor is of an olive tree and um, the Jews are the root. They are, they just are. And they they have not been uprooted, um, but rather the Gentiles have been grafted on and they have been grafted on um, because of the Jewish stumbling. So because the Jews stumbled, it has actually, God uses their sin as an opportunity to expand salvation to all, to the Gentiles as well, right? God turns that evil for good. Um, and, uh, and he says, he, he does say as well in, in um, chapter 11 in verse 25, um, he says, a partial hardening has come upon Israel until the fullness of the Gentiles come in. Another mystical phrase, what that means, we don't entirely know. Um, And in this way, all Israel will be saved. And uh, much ink has been spilled on that. um, But I do not believe that uh, there there is nothing here talking about geopolitical boundaries Mm. or nation states. Um, I do believe that this means that at some point, uh, the sons of Abraham will enter fully into the church. Um, and that's not me being supersessionist. Uh, I, I think that's a solid strain of Christian commentary. Christopher, you and I both love John Stott. Um, and I used his, his commentary on Romans as the primary text. 
how, why did I emphasize it that way? That's the primary <laughs> text for when I preached on this. And, and he very humbly asserts this, that this is talking about people entering Christ's holy Catholic church. Um, and so that's not supersessionism. It's just God right. will ultimately bring his people into the fullness of salvation in Jesus Christ. And I don't think that's controversial to say, is it? No, I, I don't think so. It, it, I think the, the, the thing to avoid is to say that, that somehow God has rejected his, his own promise to Israel. Because God, ha- right. you know, God hasn't, because God can't. He hasn't. God, God, God is a keeper of promises. And so everything that he's promised to Israel, like he will do. Um, but, but what you're saying is that is done through the church. Not, so the thing we want to avoid is supersessionism, which the church has, has weighed in on. Um, and said that, no, like God has rejected Israel and said, I, I choose the church instead. But um, I like the way that you said it, Kurt. Yeah. And let us remember, because St. Paul admonishes Gentiles, like you are the graft. <laughs> Don't right. look yeah. at the, the languishing olive tree that's been pruned and, uh, and assume that you have something better. Um, we are being grafted into something more ancient. And we, mm-hmm. you and I, Christopher, as Gentiles, mm-hmm. are being yeah. grafted into something more ancient, more lovely, more complete than what we came from, right? Our ancestors were pagan idol worshipers in the Northern European plain, right? Yeah. Well, God's whole chosen people were worshiping um, in the beauty of holiness in the temple. Yeah. So <laughs> we should not say anything to the, to the root, right? We are the grafted branches. We're the Johnny-come-latelys. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, yeah, and, and so we, we kind of have, have the two sides uh, to this. And I don't know if last week if I mentioned the... I think I meant to, I don't think I did this, this idea of us holding two things that seem separate uh, intention, you know, and the one that I always think of is, is that that God is both just and merciful. Mm -hmm. Uh, And, and I've never heard those described as, as Venn diagrams, but I guess we could think of those as Venn diagrams where there is an intersection there. And and that's kind of where, where God is. And, so I think uh, just in, in two, two things that aren't saying different things, but are looking at different sides of it, um, the other one would be Hebrews. So, so we have Romans on the, on the one side, but then Hebrews on the other side point to Jesus as the, as the fulfillment, as the new and better Adam, as the new and better, uh, as the fulfillment of Israel. Like all of Israel was, was, was fulfilled in the person and work of Jesus. And we have this this new and better covenant, and and those th- so those things are all true in Hebrews. And Hebrews is a great book to study, um, along Amen. with Romans. We we must remember both things. Mm-hmm. Yeah, absolutely. Um, a word about uh, the Psalm that's uh, that's quoted, uh, because we have uh, in verse forty two, Jesus said to them, "Have you never read the Scriptures?" And then he quotes a, a section of Psalm one eighteen. Uh, the stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. This was the Lord's doing, and it is marvelous in our eyes. And this is intentional uh, because this was a, a psalm that uh, it's a psalm of national thanksgiving, and it was accompanied, it was used to accompany processions into the temple. Um, probably when there was a thanksgiving offering, it was probably a psalm that had been recently sung as. Um, Jews from all over the Roman world were descending, uh, not descending, ascending to Jerusalem. Jerusalem was on a hill. 
and uh, and they would sing, you know, from their hymnal as they were on their way there. And uh, Psalm 118, it's uh, it's longish. So I'm not going to read the whole thing. It's 29 verses. I'll just kind of outline. It has it has this interesting trajectory, and it 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 makes more sense when you understand its role in Jewish liturgy. So you have um, you have an exchange before the door of the temple. That's kind of the first 20 verses. Um, give thanks unto the Lord for his gracious, his mercy endures forever. Let Israel now confess that he is gracious, that his mercy endures forever. And there's kind of this antiphonal um, song of praise. What, um, what is an antiphon, Kirk? Antiphon is chanting back and forth. And so um, it, psalms often have an antiphonal uh, cadence to them or rhythm to them uh, just because of the nature of Hebrew poetry. Um, there will be kind of it's what's it what's it called uh, Hebrew parallelism that you have yeah we talked about this recently yeah yeah, yeah. and you yeah. had an example the Lord your his mercy endures forever yeah you know give thanks to the Lord his his mercy endures forever yeah right so that, that's that's that is an antiphon and and in, in Anglican worship antiphons are are very common um it's very common to to have a, a an antiphon before and after a psalm or something like that where where uh, it, and it would be thematic either yeah. for that psalm or that season yeah yeah so you have 19 verses worth of that, right? And it's beautiful, and I, we can even link to it. I recommend looking at it. And then, on, and then on verse 19, the king turns to the doorkeeper and asks for entrance. Verse 19, open unto me the gates of righteousness, that I may go into them and give thanks unto the Lord. Um, and then verse 20, a response, this is the gate of the Lord. The righteous shall enter into it. Um, so the king declares that God has saved him in verse 21. I will thank you for you have heard me and have become my righteousness. And then the people respond in a joyful manner in the next several verses. They say, I will thank you for you have heard me and have become my salvation. And this cryptic verse, which I wonder as, as Hebrews and Jews saying this for generation after generation, what they thought this meant. I mean, this has to have been always as when the foundations of the earth were laid this was planned as a prophetic um prophetic verse the same stone this is verse 22 of this of this psalm the same stone which the builders refused has become the chief's cornerstone this is the lord's doing and it is marvelous in our eyes what must this have meant to jews that were singing this i don't know if they if you know, we, we, we sing a lot of pop songs that we grow up with, and so we grow callous to nonsense lyrics, and yet a lot of good songwriters know that um, it's pop songs, the whole point of pop songs is just to, it's not to be profound, right? You're not, you're not being Horace or Shakespeare or Milton when you're writing a pop song, just nonsense lyrics. So I, we sing songs and we don't even question what the lyric means. I wonder if generations of Jews sang that and, and didn't, and wondered what it meant. Um, and Jesus, right before uh, the eyes of his contemporaries and for the rest of history, interprets that and says, that's me. <laughs> that's me. And uh, we see in light of this parable, we see the coming together of a bunch of different streams, right? Jews coming to Jerusalem to celebrate the Passover. The Passover is a remembrance and a retelling of the story when God saved Israel from the angel of death by smearing the blood of an innocent lamb on the lintels and doorposts of all of Israel's houses. 
Well, Jesus is coming to Jerusalem mm -hmm. to commemorate Passover and then become the true Passover lamb that yeah. is that is smeared on the hearts and lint and the lintels of our hearts <laughs> in Christian worship as we partake of him in holy and communion. And as Paul tells us, I'm sorry to interrupt. <laughs> yes, yeah. Paul. As Paul tells the in First Corinthians, he says, "Behold, our Passover lamb is sacrificed for us." Yes. You know, so not only did Christ uh, teach us and reinterpret himself as the Passover lamb, but we see Paul's teaching reaffirming this. And so he, yes, correct. Christ, so, our Passover lamb, is sacrificed for us. Therefore, let us keep the feast. Hallelujah. Yep. Um, and so we see that stream here. And then we also see um, in this parable, Jesus making it plain. <laughs> um, I am to be killed by, uh, by I am, I've been sent by the owner of the vineyard, but I am going to, I'm the, I'm the owner's son, and yet I will be killed. And then he cites this psalm that everybody had just been singing. And what is this psalm about? This is about the king, right? The son of David, the Davidic king, entering into his courts of praise. And then this cryptic verse <laughs> about the stone which the builders rejected, but it, it is becoming the chief cornerstone in the new thing and it is the Lord's doing, and it is marvelous in our eyes. And I am not, I am not a scholar of Psalms or a Hebrew scholar, so this is such a layman's interpretation, but this still gives me chills as I see what Jesus is doing as he's weaving together these strands, both for his contemporary audience and then for us as, as readers. So, Christopher, I don't know. I, I got excited, and I started speaking fast and stumbling over my words. Does that make sense? Yeah. Yeah, that's great. <laughs> I love it. Yeah. Yeah, and I, I just wonder, you know, as, as we talk about, you know, rejection, um, it's hard for me not to think about uh, the, the song of the suffering servant that we see in, in Isaiah 53, which again, it, it wasn't until the church early on, you know, and I, and I mean, mean early on, like in the first weeks and months, that suddenly it was like, oh my gosh, hey, remember in Isaiah when we read about this servant that was rejected? Uh, that uh, his appearance was so marred beyond all human semblance. He was despised and rejected by men, a man of sorrows, acquainted with grief. And they're like, oh my gosh, when he was in the garden, you know, when he was on the cross, you know, rejected. Um, Surely he has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows, yet we esteemed him stricken, smitten by God and afflicted. This is Isaiah 53 that I'm reading from. So for these, for, for just the, eureka moments that, that those that the disciples would have had in those early weeks and months as they kind of put together the the prophecies and how they were, they came to fruition in jesus christ hey so uh i'm gonna weave together one one other weird strand and i'm probably gonna lose all of our listeners at this point <laughs> but but i was um i was listening on a on a to a podcast recently um, of, uh, of, of evening prayer, service of choral evensong from Hereford Cathedral in England. Uh, I, I, I'm a, I scour the internet for recordings of choral evensong to listen to. I was walking our dog in the woods, and the, um, the reading from the Old Testament was this uh, interesting, obscure reading um, in Ezekiel chapter 37. Christopher, do you know this? The, uh, the two sticks that become one? <laughs> And uh, I was reminded of this um, then when I was looking at this reading, and we see 
that Jesus is the chief cornerstone, right? A cornerstone is where two walls that are, at per, that are mm. perpendicular to each other mm. meet. So this has to be Jews and Gentiles, right? Um, Jesus mm. is the cornerstone that brings together Jews mm. and Gentiles. Um, yeah, what's better than a wall? Well, a whole structure made of multiple walls, right? And, um, and it, it, was, it put me in mind as I was then listening to this, uh, this reading from Ezekiel chapter 37 of the two sticks that become one. I'm like, oh my gosh, that, that is precisely just like that. Yeah, uh, so here's verse song. 21 and 22, behold, uh, middle of 21. Behold, I will take the people of Israel from the nations among which they have gone and will gather them from all around and bring them to their own land. And I will make them one nation in the land on the mountains of Israel, and one king shall be king over them all, and they shall no longer be two nations, no longer divided into two kingdoms. And it, you know, it's, it kind of gives us an, a vision of, it's interesting, we are all familiar with Ezekiel 37 more for the first half. Yes. Of dry bones than the second half of, of uh, two sticks becoming one. But of course, uh, as we think of Jesus and what he did, all, you know, the whole purpose of Israel being a light to the nations was, was to point to God and to point to eventually the, the redemption of the world through Jesus Christ. Um, and, and, and the promise to Abraham that, that through him all nations would be blessed was pointing forward to Jesus who was to reverse the curse. Yeah. You know, what's interesting about the two sticks, Christopher. Um, yeah. He tells, he tells, uh, the uh, the author is told to write Judah's name on the first stick, right? For Judah and the people of Israel associated with him, then take another stick and write on it for Joseph, the stick of Ephraim and all the house of Israel associated with him and join them one to another in one stick that they become one in your hand. Um, and so uh, at that time you had uh, the, the people of the North and the people of the South um, who had been, uh, been into two kingdoms and uh, that had to be inconceivable that they would be, they would <laughs> be joined. Um, just like in, in Jesus times, it, it must've been inconceivable that Jew and Roman would be joined in one. And yet, and yet now it is so. Well, and surely this is, this is figurative as well, because um, the, the Northern kingdoms weren't really um, restored yeah, uh, yeah you know physically like the, they they went into captivity and weren't restored in the same way that judah was after, after they were in exile in babylon um that they are essentially lost uh tribes and um and and we see this this is figurative language um not figurative but but pointing to jesus in verse 24 of ezekiel 37 my servant david shall be king over them well who is this talking about <laughs> the son right. of david right yeah uh, jesus himself yeah and they shall have one shepherd um, and, and so, I mean, it's, it's pointing to, to the world being restored uh, by the work of Jesus. Amen. Amen. Boy, that was a lot, a lot richer and deeper than I think either you and I had anticipated, huh, Christopher? So, yes, certainly went farther afield. <laughs> Let's move on to our theology segment.
so our, the topic of our theology segment is, is fall, not the fall, but autumn, the season that, that we find ourselves in here. And I know we have listeners in the South who are still weeks away from sweater weather, <laughs> but Kirk remarked on how the leaves aren't changing in, in the Pittsburgh area, but there's evidence that, that fall is coming. And for me, uh, I'm sentimental about fall. I have always lived a life that, that revolves around the academic school year. So whether I was a student myself, which was for a long time, or whether I was a teacher, or but even in the church, uh, the, the, the church does kind of await kind of the return of people from vacation and and all the things that summer brings. And there's, there's a sense of a ministry year from September to May uh, that, uh, that I look forward to, not in a liturgical sense, because our liturgical calendar is far greater uh, than, 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 you know, the NFL season or, right, other, right. or, or other things that, that we kind of think of. But I've always looked forward to the return, the, what fall means. Uh, fall means the return of school, the return of, of kind of church activities, uh, fall means the re- return of football. It means baseball playoffs. Uh, there's just an excitement. Also, uh, as as a biological northerner, and I mean this in in the most literal sense, that uh, were you to drop me 500 miles south of here, I would literally die. Uh, like I, I could not survive living in, in a climate that's a whole lot warmer than the one I'm living in. Uh, so I, I, the South Dakota's summers are far too hot for me. I long for the return of the cool weather that, that the fall brings, but that's not why we're talking about fall. Those are all sentimental things. In fact, um, the reason I wanted to talk about fall today was was uh, just, uh, I, w- I want to tie it to theology. And, and, and here's how. As Christians, we mark our time differently. You know, we, of course, we use the calendar January through, through December. But I, I remember as a kid, I, how old would I have been when for the movie Forrest Gump came out? Uh, that was 1994. I remember our Nana, um, Dearly departed, um, brought us to see Forrest Gump in the theaters. I don't she know was the so excited. She loved that movie. She, she loved the movie, and and uh, I don't remember going to many other movies. I mean, she brought she she loved uh, introducing us to culture. Whether that I remember she was bringing us to symphonies and this and that. Yeah. But she wanted to bring us to see Forrest Gump, and I remember there there's there's a scene where these girls are pontificating on the new year and what that brings that you get a new start. And I remember being completely mystified as a kid by this. And I, I, as as a kid being mystified by this idea that somehow uh, the, the changing from 1993 to 1994 makes a difference as far as a new start. But what these girls were longing for was, was, redemption and reconciliation uh that what they're longing for is forgiveness and absolution uh they, they were longing for something that a calendar can't give you um, so so we have these these kind of secular things that aren't good ways of marking time when uh 
we we uh, although we do we do mark seasons, and the church has so although we have a, a separate calendar, a calendar that begins with the first Sunday of Advent, um, four Sundays before Christmas. That's the beginning of happy. You know, well, we should have a New Year's. Uh, <laughs> uh, the church year ends at the end of November or beginning of December, but. We also uh, mark the seasons in, in particular ways. And uh, I, we probably started this podcast too late to really talk, or, or did we talk about irrigation days? We did. We did talk okay. about irrigation, yeah. And, and so, so we mark both the planting and the harvest liturgically. As, as liturgical people, we know that all things come from God. And, and so uh, our Reformed friends are really, really good about talking about the sovereignty of God and uh, have, have, have a good explanation and understanding of that that pervades all of their theology. And, and, and it would behoove us to, 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 to listen to them and read up and learn from them and, and for us to understand the sovereignty of God and also to understand God's providence. And so to demystify a complicated word of providence is just the idea that God provides. All things come from God. Uh, you know, and we have as part of our liturgy, when we receive the offering, we have this thing that we say, uh, this lengthy thing, which I'm actually going to take the time so I don't butcher it. Not only because I would butcher it even if I said it every week, but we haven't been doing that since we've been doing a touchless offering. When, okay, so when we gather the offering, we say this, yours, O Lord, is the greatness and the power and the glory and the victory and the majesty for everything in heaven and on earth is yours. Yours is the kingdom, O Lord, and you are exalted as head above all. All things come from you, O Lord. And then the people respond, and of your own have we given you. And we've talked before about the power of liturgy informing us as worshipers. And, and as we present our offerings uh, and set them on the altar, uh, for us to acknowledge that the, the things that we return to the Lord, uh, we've given, it says, of your own have we given you. So anything we give belongs to the Lord's. And, and our tithe, our 10%, is just an acknowledgement that God gives us everything. And so we give him 10% back. And so um, there's something worshipful about acknowledging God's providence, about when we pray, knowing that drought, hail, wind, uh, a terrible wind, uh, uh, a storm that I'd never heard of until this summer, something called a derecho, where I don't know how to pronounce it, flew through <laughs> central <laughs> Iowa and destroyed uh, tons yeah. of crops. And there's so many, any person who's worked in or adjacent to agriculture knows that you are at the mercy of, of so much of, of elements. That's why the farm bill is a big part of, our, of, of uh, appropriations in, in our Congress because uh, we need to provide insurance for, for our farmers because there's so much that is out of their hands. You plant and the Lord provides. And so in the spring, we mark the planting and we cover it with prayer. And as we gather, as we harvest, um, we give thanks for that. And, and Thanksgiving is, is a beautiful and wonderful holiday and a profoundly Christian one of, of giving thanks for what we have, knowing that all things come from God. And um, so that's, that's a big thing that, that, uh, that fall gives us. And also, it's interesting how much agricultural imagery there is in the scriptures mm. of the scattering of, 
yeah, of the sowing of seeds being the word of God, that the work that you and I do, um, and, and, and Jesus said, you know, the, the harvest is, is plentiful and the laborers are, fl- are few. Therefore, pray to the Lord of the harvest to send out laborers into his harvest. Uh, so, so not only are we, each of us Christians, laborers in the harvest, seeking to bring in a greater harvest, but we also pray for the Lord to go into the harvest and to bring in souls. So there's this biblical imagery of planting the seed, planting the word, and the Lord at, on the last day, on the eschaton, gathering in that harvest. And so that kind of table set, I'm going to hand it over to Kirk for, for his <laughs> um, insightful thoughts. Well, I just had uh, two things that I wanted to point out about Autumn. Uh, first of all, it's, uh, it is obviously the most beautiful holiday in the Northeast of, um, or se- of season, the United not States. Holiday. Season. Uh, and I guess I, really the Northeast in, is um, everything above the Mason-Dixon line east of Cleveland. Because what are we talking about? We're talking about deciduous forests, right? Mm. Um, and when do deciduous forests enter their glory? But mm. in autumn. Mm. And, uh, and, and Christopher, you and I grew up in Northern Minnesota and there are a lot of like maple trees and oak trees and whatever, but there's such a snap. Uh, <laughs> Winter, winter descends <laughs> like the White Walkers <laughs> across the wall. Not, it doesn't doesn't creep along gently like it does here in Pennsylvania. So, so Christopher, uh, the, the color season in in Minnesota is so brief, and by October it's kind of done. Whereas, uh, hey, Kirk, I want to interrupt you very briefly. To, to uh, a good friend of mine from my high school class, remarked at one point, uh, he's been in the East now for probably a decade, but he he, he remarked probably not a decade, but anyway, he, he remarked that like, we didn't have fall up there. No. You know, like this, this whole season where everyone like drinks pumpkin spice and like pumpkin season, like, <laughs> right. like that wasn't just a, that wasn't really a thing that we had up, up North. That's right. Yeah. This is a, a new beautiful like, thing so in my life. Introduced have, into apple picking and pumpkin yeah. carving. This, and is, Lesley, this is Leslie. Yes. Yeah. I think he and I have <laughs> even had this conversation. Like we've had eyes to, <laughs> we uniquely as Minnesotans have eyes to appreciate a uh, Northeastern, uh, fall because we grew up without fall, right? So it's so beautiful, and um, I, I just want to highlight that this isn't this is this is good and godly, and it's it's yeah, right yeah. at the beginning of the Bible, um, in mm. the in Genesis one, um, on the fourth day, this is what God creates, and God said, "Let there be lights in the expanse of the heaven to separate the day from the night, and let there let." them be for signs and for seasons and for days and for years and let them be lights in the expanse of the heaven to give light upon the earth. And it was so, um, meaning, uh, the signs and seasons aren't accidents of our, of our, uh, the tilt of our axis and our rotation. Um, we only have seasons because uh, our axis is tilted. If it were perfectly, perfectly perpendicular to our revolution around the sun, um, your, your climate would be totally um, determined by your latitude. Um, but as a result of our tilting, there's sometimes where we're close to the sun and sometimes where we're far away from the sun. In the winter, the sun is low in the sky um, because we're further from the sun um, than we are in, in the summer. So um, this is intentional. We read in Genesis yeah. 1, this is all intentional, meaning God intentionally created beauty and variety and the changing of seasons. So um, it's uh, the, the beauty of autumn is, is it's not just, I mean, if, if you're a pure, hard, secular Darwinist, you're just thankful for like the death of, <laughs> the death of trees. Like 
boy, that tree died so that I may have temporary beauty. But we recognize that God has, has creates good and lovely rhythms. Um, and I just wanted to end with, because I'm a obnoxious church musician, I just wanted to end citing one of my favorite hymns that we sing in the fall. Um, we plow the fields and scatter. And I think I actually, actually, uh, cited this in when we talked about rogation christopher in in the spring um this to me is is the best of reformed piety um staring at the beauty of creation and marveling at god's providence um, mm. it's often said that reformed theology all different pockets of theology are fixated on different aspects of god's character and god's mm -hmm. good gifts and reformed theology is is particularly particularly marvels at God's providence. And this, this hymn does so, um, so well. Uh, we plow the fields and scatter the good seed on the land, but it is fed and watered by God's almighty hand. Mm. He sends the snow in winter, the warmth to swell the grain, the breezes and the sunshine and soft refreshing rain. And then the refrain for each verse, all good things around us are sent from heaven above then thank the Lord or oh, thank the Lord for all his love. Um, I want the, the second verse is beautiful as well. I will, I'll skip it and I'll just read the last verse. Uh, we thank thee then, O oh father, for all things bright and good, the seed time and the harvest, our life, our health, our food. The gifts we have to offer are what thy love imparts, but chiefly thou desirest our humble, thankful hearts. Mm. Uh, friends, when we stare, uh, when we marvel at the beauty of a maple in all its flaming orange and red glory uh, this autumn, um, chiefly God desires our humble, thankful hearts as we thank him for the beauty of creation. And to bring things back to Forrest Gump, that's all I have to say about that. <laughs> Amen. Shall we move on to culture? Let's move on to culture. talking about today we're talking about ted lasso christopher you put me on to ted lasso so um, i did I, I was like you guys well i was <laughs> I, I think i asked you if you watched it and you're like uh no i didn't and, even and know so, what it was <laughs> at some point i was just like you and kim need to watch this show <laughs> yes you know everyone needs to watch this show and and so i've talked about it on another podcast already so you kick us off please <laughs> Oh gosh. And your, your, uh, your summary, I should not have listened to that podcast because your summary of it was, was so good. I'm just going to feel like I can't, can't, can't quite, um, capture its essence as you did. 
uh, Ted Lasso um, was based off of um, just an NBC when when the Premier League uh, was carried on when NBC bought the rights for Premier League television in the United States. Um, they had a series of commercials, right? And they used Jason Sudeikis, a uh, SNL uh, and a star and comedian. They used him as um, Frankly, he's a stereotypical SEC football coach, right? I mean, yes. I picture him as like, uh, like Mississippi State or just some generic. Like, let's create a non a non-existent college, like Alabama State, after winning the national title, right? Um, and so, in these promotions for for English Premier League, uh, or for whatever, yeah, English Premier League, whatever. Uh, like, what I remember is is in these commercials for however many years ago. Coach Ted Lasso was like, we're going to get after them for all four quarters. And then like someone <laughs> from the side was like, uh, two halves, you know, there's not, you know, quarters here. Like, he, he just, he, he was a dumb American abroad, uh, kind of bumbling his way along. And that was it. But that was the premise. That was the premise. And, and somebody, it was funny in 30 second spots. Yeah. And somebody said, I guess I don't know the background, but, but um, we talked about, Greyhound, the movie, the fantastic Tom Hanks submarine yeah. movie. Well, I guess not really a submarine movie, uh, anti-submarine movie uh, a few <laughs> weeks ago that, that you can only watch on this Apple TV Plus service that uh, you can get a free one-week trial uh, of, or you can, if you buy any Apple device, they'll give you a free year of it. And that's why we have access to it. And so we love Greyhound. There's a few other shows. Not, there's not a lot of content there, but there is this new 30-minute comedy, 10 episodes. Uh, we've both watched the first nine episodes of it. And, and what do you think, Kirk? American mustachioed Southern accent coach coaching uh, – well, it's fun on several levels. First of all, on the most superficial level, it's fun because it has fun with tropes. Um, like I said, it, he is this, the, the prototypical SEC coach. Christopher, and you and I played football. We didn't play like big time football. We played nine man football in, in Northern Minnesota. So uh, forgive us, those of you who played um, really good, high quality competitive football anywhere. But like we know, we know kind of some of the football tropes. Yeah, let's get after it for all four quarters and um, and, and then, you know, you watch uh, the SEC on CBS on Saturday afternoons and you, um, football culture in the South is one of the beautiful aspects of Americana. And um, it's a thing. It really exists. And that, that type of rah-rah Southerner who uh, just pulls out all the cliches and has figurative uh, terms for everything, um, he, that, that's a real person and he exists across the Fruited Plain. And Jason Sudeikis plays him. He's, it's so great. And then you have other tropes. You have, you have the, the jerk uh, young, um, the brash, uh, bra yeah. brash, athletic, Uncoachable, selfish. Yeah. yeah. And of course he has a, a trashy West Midlands accent from <laughs> Sheffield or Manchester or Birmingham or something. Right. Um, you have, uh, the, the, um, the trashy girl who's like the, the hanger on She only dates footballers. Right. She doesn't, no one knows what she is. She's like an Instagram influencer who somehow has made millions of dollars off of that. Um, then you have the ice queen, owner Dave Orsay so you've got all these tropes and it could that could be awful right that could be just lazy writing but um they're not merely tropes over the course of the season they become they're woven together in a really humane tapestry um and and we see all of them at their highs and lows um and uh, Christopher you you've pointed this out uh that it is profoundly for a secular show a story of 
story of grace. Mm. Several of the characters. Oh, the other trope I didn't mention is is the um, the veteran footballer who's yeah, yeah. losing <laughs> losing his edge. And of course, he too mm. has a trashy South London accent. Yes, right. And he's just like uh, like Bruce Banner. The secret is he's always angry, right? Yes. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, and and the angry vet who never smiles. That's a thing too, right? We all appreciate that as an athletic trope. Um, but they all have this redemption arc. Um, that's not corny or either it's so boldly corny that we buy in. I can't tell mm. which is true. Um, but it, this is a movie that believes about grace. A, a, show, a show. A show. A show that believes about grace and redemption mm. and second chances. Um, and uh, in those grace and second chances, um, it, it tells a story that's more powerful than a lot of what you'll see on serial television. So I don't and know, Christopher, is that stealing humor. a lot of your thunder? No, 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 no. And it's, I love it. And, and it's sprinkled with humor throughout. So we see these beautiful arcs like these. So although there may be tropes, uh, none of these characters are static characters. Um, so, so this, this uh, kind of uh, somewhat trashy Instagram influencer girlfriend who's, who's starts out the series as, you know, really not deep. Right. She, she kind of matures and we, we, we watch that happen as, as her realizing she's uh, that 10 years ago, she was dating 20, 21 year old football players and, or soccer players. Right. And she's still doing that. And she yeah. hasn't moved on. She hasn't, <laughs> she hasn't matured. And uh, Roy Kent, this aging star. Yeah. <laughs> uh, I, I, he's my favorite character. I, he cracks me up. I, there, there, he, he comes to maturity in one point where, um, he realizes that um, he too was once a young, brash star who never listened to anybody. And there was uh, an older player on his team who essentially took control and took him under his wing and helped them win championships. And, and someone asked, like, do you guys get along now? And he's like, no way. I hope he's dead. <laughs> <laughs> uh, actually, I didn't say no way. There's an expletive there. Bleep no! I hope he's dead. Which, which, which is just a, a refreshing, just funny uh, moment. Even as he's, you realize that that Roy is is maturing uh, in in a really, really redemptive way. Mm-hmm. And 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 I think that's that's always a really interesting arc. Um, Cars three was not a movie that was well reviewed or well liked by it was you know neither critics nor audiences liked it. Right. But it's a really compelling story about like. Uh, identity like like the aging star uh, who can no longer perform like who 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 am I and we see that in episode nine Kirk uh, where <laughs> Keely and Roy are having a conversation he's like oh she, she says to him oh we're gonna talk about real stuff now okay you know is, is he talking about like who he's always thought of himself as and who like he's always been his identity has been a, being a soccer star and so if he goes to the bench does he, is he, he doesn't talk, he doesn't use the word identity, but he's just like, who am I? If, if I'm not, you know, a starter, if I'm not a captain, if I'm not this, and, and he grapples with that. And that's always a compelling arc that like, obviously that can be done poorly, but it's compelling because at what, when you put your identity in, in fleeting things, uh, well, first of all, like in Christ, we don't do that. Our identity is found in Jesus Christ. So as Christians, we don't find our identity in external things. But in our immaturity, sometimes we do. Sometimes we do. And when most Christians encounter this is, is in retirement. They spent, Christians find, spend so much of their lives 
doing one thing when they retire and stop doing that, they have a crisis at that age uh, because they've always been a teacher, a this, a that. And uh, so it's easy to fall into a crisis when you define your life, your identity as one thing throughout your life. And then that changes. And so uh, Christian or not, in Christ, we shouldn't put our identity in external things. Our identity should be found in Christ and in him alone. And, and that in itself is, is satisfying and it's, it's assurance and it's comforting and it's, and, and it's our, it, it, it gives us purpose and gives us an even keel. So we don't have these radical highs and lows uh, that, that, that someone might have if they associate their identity with their performance on the soccer field or on the baseball field. So I just found that to be a really, really compelling arc of, of, uh, of this aging star who actually has to grapple with maybe not being uh, the soccer player that he once was. And it's, it's done with humor and with, with charity and grace, and it makes you laugh. And, and the winsomeness of, of Ted Lasso is just overwhelming Kirk. But yeah. I've I've said a lot. I want to hear I want to hear your thoughts. You've already heard mine. Yeah. Uh, well, just two things. Um, first of all, Danny Rojas, who we haven't talked about, is great. <laughs> He's this uh, football this, is life. He, yeah, he shows up in the middle of season one, sort of a Deus ex machina. Um, he's like an infusion of talent that you don't even know exists on the team. He was like a 18 year old that they had signed and gotten injured, and suddenly like in episode five or something, uh, someone reports, well, Danny Rojas is now available. He's healthy and off the injured reserve. And Ted Lasso is like, who? And he waltzes <laughs> in and he's this like Mexican, what does he call him? Like a raven haired golden retriever. <laughs> something like that. Yeah. yeah. He just runs around. Football is life. Football <laughs> is life. And he's amazing, right? He's just got this, this golden boot. Um, and um, so he's just great. Uh, but that's not a profound point. He's just great. But my profound point is this. Um, it's often been noted that uh, teams uh, hire and fire coaches swinging from one pole to the other. Mm. Um, you have a drill sergeant to clean up a mess that was left behind when an organization is in disarray. And then eventually that drill sergeant grinds people down. And then they bring in, they swing the other way, and they bring in a hippie guru. And the hippie guru um, helps people rediscover the joy of the game that they had lost under the drill sergeant, right? And then eventually discipline breaks down and stuff falls apart. And then you got to bring in drill sergeant to remind people how to play the game again, right? Well, uh, Ted Lasso is interesting because he's got he, his, uh, basically his, his assistant coach is the X's and O's guy. It's, it's this dr the drill sergeant, the guy who like points out, that guy's not doing that. That guy's not doing that. That guy's not doing his job. And then Ted is the hippie guru, right? Mm -hmm. Like his style of coaching, he doesn't, like, you don't get the sense he doesn't know X's and O's. He learns them. That's not what's important to him. And uh, it, it, this is interesting. It's an interesting theory of coaching, which is the importance of coaching. And, and anybody who's ever been in a position of leadership knows this. The importance of coaching is actually um, making people feel appreciated so that they want to perform for you, mm. right? Um, and yeah. Roy, the, the grizzled veteran, hates the feeling, begin to well up in his soul, that he wants to do well for Ted Lasso. He's like, <laughs> dang it, I can't believe I want to play well for this stupid Yankee, right? His Yankee doodle crap, his Yankee doodle bleep bleep, right? But in the end, they all want to, you know, play well for his Yankee doodle bleep bleep, right? Mm. They all... They all can't help but fall for his rah-rah style.
it's just so great. It's so great. Yeah, and I had watched. I love it a great deal, and I think it's it's a broadly appealing show. Not not everything we talk about is something that everyone will like, but every, everyone should watch this show, don't you think? I do think so. Christopher, let's end in prayer. The Lord be with you, and with your spirit. Let us pray. Keep, O Lord, your household, the church, in continual godliness, that through your protection it may be free from all adversities and devoutly serve you in good works to the glory of your name, through Jesus Christ our Lord, who lives with you in the Holy Spirit, one God, now and forever. Amen. Amen. O God, the source of all holy desires, all good counsels, and all just works, give to your servants that peace which the world cannot give that our hearts may be set to obey your commandments and that we being defended from the fear of your, of our enemies may pass our time in rest and quietness through the merits of Jesus Christ, our savior. Amen. Amen. Light in our darkness. We beseech you. O Lord. Savior, Jesus Christ. Amen. Amen. The grace of our Lord Jesus Christ and the love of God and the fellowship of the Holy Spirit be with us all evermore. Amen. Amen. Next week, Kirk. Next week.